0: Alright, well good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we are in John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6 and we are continuing our series Captivated by Jesus. Captivated by Jesus. We're working through the gospel of John and, and we're, we're really hitting this at a high level. We're not going every single verse through the gospel of John but, but, but more like chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John, and we have made our way over to John chapter 6 this morning. Uh, it is important to us that we look at God's Word, that we, that we dive into God's Word, and we see what it has to tell us and what it has to say to us. And so, however you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open that, whether you got a print copy, whether you have that on your you know, mobile device or tablet, uh, go there now. We're going to be in the text. It's a pretty lengthy text this morning, Um, you know, over 60 verses. So I'm not going to read that to begin with, but we will read it as we go through. And I would encourage you, even after today's message, while you're at home this afternoon, to spend some time reading through the text, reflecting on the message that you hear today. So John chapter 6, who can provide eternal soul satisfaction is the question we're answering. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we will dive in. And God, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to gather together as your church, God, to open your word and to hear you speak to us. And God, may we hear that this morning as we work through this text. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Camden, Bryson, uh, they're, they're both growing boys. Uh, Camden, in particular, every morning we wake him up for breakfast before he goes to school and we ask him, what do you want to eat? And he inevitably says, I would like a waffle, I would like some toast, a bagel, some oatmeal, and maybe some yogurt. And we're like, okay, hold up, you, you can't have all of that this morning. Uh, we would not get you to school. You're going to have to pick at least one of those or two of those. And so typically pick like a waffle and some oatmeal and he will eat it all. Um, and, you know, I remember those times as a kid. I would, I would go and, and I would have a, a big meal. I would get seconds. And then a couple of hours later, I would find myself standing before the refrigerator looking for something else. Uh, another bowl, a bowl of cereal or something like that before I would go to bed. You know, it's hard to satisfy the hunger of a growing child. It's hard to satisfy the hunger of a teenager. Uh, It's hard to fill them up. And just like it is hard to fill up a a child, just like it's hard to fill up a teenager, it, it is hard to fill us up, but just in a different way. You know, I came across an article the other day entitled, An Epidemic of Dissatisfaction, Why Your Staff Are Jumping Ship and How to Stop Them. And the article highlighted that, that more than 57% of millennial-aged employees leave their employer in the first year. Now, I didn't choose this article to, to pick on millennials in, in any way, right? Rather, I chose it just to highlight the dissatisfaction of people, the, the things that, that the world you know, s- promises to satisfy us with, career Money, status, food—these things cannot ultimately satisfy us. These things leave us empty. This is why people jump from job to job. This is why people jump from relationship to relationship. This is why people who have money are not really any happier than people who don't have money. We have a satisfaction problem, and at the root of this satisfaction problem, it's not—it's not things that are physical. Rather, it is spiritual. The satisfaction problem exists because we are trying to satisfy a spiritual problem with a physical solution. But that won't work. You know, we cannot satisfy our spiritual hunger with the things that the world is able to offer us. Something that, that transcends this world is what we need. We need something more, something that can truly satisfy our souls, not just temporarily, just temporarily but eternally. And so how do we get that? How do we, who can provide, excuse me, who can provide eternal soul satisfaction? We'll look at verse 1 with me. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And so John 6 begins with Jesus and his disciples, you know, escaping to the mountain on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they go there in order to seek solitude and to recover from the ministry that they have been doing, right? They have been traveling, they have been ministering, they have been experiencing conflict. John chapter 5, Jesus heals the the lame man and this, you know, brings a bunch of persecution on him because he does this on the Sabbath. He makes himself equal to the Father as he's beginning to talk to the Jewish officials. And so they begin to persecute him and not only persecute him, they begin to seek Jesus's life. And so it's no wonder that Jesus needs some rest. Jesus needs to recover from this ministry that he has been doing. And we need time to pause. We need time to, to disengage as well. We need time to recover. We need time to, to be ministered to. I mean, sometimes we get so caught up in ministering to other people and trying to meet other people's needs that we forget that we need times of rest. We need times of recovery. We need times of ministry, right? There, there's, there's a reason why we are a part of a church body. So that, so that we can minister to one another. And sometimes you might be the person who is ministering and at other times you might be the person who needs that ministry, but we are all a part of a church body so that we are able to receive the ministry that we need. We are able to refresh one another. We are able to encourage one another. We need times of ministry. If Jesus needed it, then we need it as well. And so here's Jesus. He goes off to this desolate mountain with his disciples and he goes off, in order to experience rest. And while this was Jesus' plan, you know, the, the people, they, they had another plan all together. Instead of letting Jesus go, the people followed Jesus out to this mountain. And so why did the people follow Jesus? Well, it wasn't because the people wanted to obey Jesus. It wasn't because the people wanted to, to submit their lives to Jesus at all at this point. No, verse two, the, the end of verse two there, they followed Jesus, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They wanted Jesus to do something for them. They wanted Jesus to minister to them. They wanted Jesus to heal them. They wanted Jesus to heal one of their family members or maybe they're like, you know, some of you when, when you're riding down the highway and there's a wreck on the other side, you see, you begin to rubberneck, you know, and you're like you just want to see something fantastical. And maybe these people were there as well. They want to see something fantastical. They want to see a miracle take place. Either way, it is the signs that Jesus has been doing, it is the miracles that he has been doing that has prompted them to follow him out there. But before John goes on with, with the narrative, he, he interrupts this narrative here in verse 4, and he says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And we got to ask ourselves, well, why does John do that? I mean, here he is, he's talking about these people coming out to see Jesus, and, and he just interrupts the flow of the narrative and tells us it is the Passover. And so why does he tell us that the Passover is at hand? Well, he does it because he wants to make this theological connection. I know it's not a one-to-one correlation, but, but you can kind of think of the Passover festival kind of like our Fourth of July. And and on the 4th of July, we, we like to go off uh, to Jen's parents' house. They, they live on a lake, and, and so it's like, you know, lake time, 4th of July, and it just kind of all goes together perfectly. And we found ourselves there last year, last 4th of July. And, and as we were out there on the dock, um, boats were just passing by. People were, were flying their flag on the lake when we got out, and we could see the people had their American flags flying high. People were celebrating. People were enjoying that day. And then when night came... fireworks started going off. And you could see those lighting up the night sky. You see, the 4th of July is a day of celebration. It is a day of, of nationalistic pride. It is a day for us to celebrate our independence. And while it's not a one-to-one correlation, that the same is, is for Israel. The Passover is a day of nationalistic pride. It is a day for them to celebrate their independence. It is a day for them to celebrate the redemption that God provided them out of Egypt in the Exodus. You see, they found themselves as slaves in bondage. And they cried out to God and God sent Moses. And, and God eventually, through Moses, drew them out of Egypt into the wilderness so that they might be able to worship him in the Exodus event. And it is every year, the Passover, that they celebrate, that the time where, where the angel of the Lord passed over the houses of those who had put the blood on the doorposts so as not to, to, to kill the firstborn that lived in that home. And so this is the Passover that they celebrate, the Passover that ultimately resulted in them coming out of Egypt as they were cast out by Pharaoh. He lost his firstborn, and many there in Egypt did as well. They were cast out to go and worship the Lord. And so they celebrate this day. John wants us to have this in mind. And so with this background, as we continue, we, we see that this, this crowd comes to Jesus. He is out there on the mountain, and these, this crowd begins to sit down. And we're told at the end of, of verse 5, or Jesus is out there, excuse me, on, on the mountain. And he sees this crowd coming to him, and we're told at the end of verse 5, lifting up his eyes, Jesus sees that a large crowd was coming to him. And this crowd was huge. We learn later that, that there's 5,000 men that were there. Now, when you begin to, to, to put in women and children, I mean, you're talking about like the size of Red Oak. So, so imagine everybody from Red Oak leaving their house and walking out to this desolate place where there's this man, and they're walking out there to hear him teach, to hear him heal in hopes of that. Red Oak is a ghost town. Similar to what has in place here. There's like 13, 14, 15,000 people coming out to Jesus when you begin to add in the women and the children that went out there. And seeing this crowd, Jesus turns to one of his disciples. He turns to Philip. And so look at at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And so there's this large crowd that comes. He, he turns to Philip and he decides, man, we, we've, got, we've got to feed these people. And he turns to Philip, who is from this area, who's from Bethsaida, and he asks him, where can we go to buy some bread? Like, do you have some inside connections? Has your family got this like massive supply chain of bread already set up that, that we can kind of plug into and we can pull some bread out here so that we can feed these people? I mean, w- what, what can we do, Philip? Now, before John pans the camera over to Philip to hear what Philip has to say, we are told here in this narrator type voice that he does this in order to test Philip. You see, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He already knew that he was going to perform this miracle that we know as the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus already knew that this was going to take place. He always has a plan. Jesus is God incarnate after all. And so it's not like he didn't know what was going to happen, but he does this to test him. He wants to see, Philip, how are you thinking? Are you still thinking in in earthly terms? I mean, you've been walking with me for a while. You have seen me perform all of these different miracles. You've seen me heal all kinds of different people. You've seen me turn water into wine as we began all of this. Are you still thinking in earthly terms, or do you realize who I am? Do you realize that I am the Son of God? Do you realize that I am God incarnate? Do you realize who I am, Philip? How are you going to think about this? He does this to test him. In verse 7, Philip answered with him. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, a denarii was a day's wage. And, and so Philip is saying, look, Jesus, 200 days wage is not going to be enough to feed all of the people that are here. And so Philip's like, Jesus, we, we, we don't have enough money. We just don't have enough. There's no way that we can do this. There is absolutely no way. And so instead of thinking in supernatural terms, what's Philip doing? Philip is thinking in earthly terms. Philip is thinking in the marketplace. He's not seeing that Jesus is capable of doing whatever it is. He's He's seeing we can't do this. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. We don't have any connection in order to make this happen at all. He's still thinking in marketplace terms. A little later on, here comes one of his disciples in verse eight. Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many?" And so Andrew's like, "Listen, Jesus, I'm I'm trying to be resourceful. You know, I heard what you asked Philip, and I'm trying to be resourceful. I've I've gone out into the crowd. I've asked all of these different people who are here if they have any food, and, and and there's no food. They didn't get the memo." right? That this was Passover potluck. Obviously, they're not good Baptists because there would have been plenty of food to go around for everybody who was there, but but they're not. They didn't get the memo that it's Passover potluck. And so all I've got to bring you, Jesus, is this boy. And he just has this meager lunch that that he is able to work with. There is not enough food to go around. But if you look and you see, Jesus is not deterred. He's not going to let a lack of food He's not going to let a lack of of money deter him in this situation to keep him from feeding the people. Jesus says in verse 10, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now we're going to stop there. Why does does John include this detail about the grass? Does, Does he just want us to know that these people didn't have to sit down on some rocks, that there's just this comfortable seat for them to sit on? Why does he include this detail about the grass? It seems pretty peripheral to the story. Well, I believe it's because he wants us to think about another Old Testament text. And what is the text that he has in mind? Well, I think all of the details that we see here, the text that he has in mind is Psalms chapter 23. You know how that psalm begins. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I believe that John is is linking us to Psalms chapter 23 because he wants us to see that Jesus is the good shepherd. He wants us to see that Jesus is capable of meeting every single one of our needs. He can provide for us in ways that we could never, ever imagine. And these Old Testament links these Old Testament allusions, they, they are not only, especially when you consider what, what Jesus does next. So look at verse 11. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus is the good shepherd from Psalms chapter 23. He is the one who provides abundantly. Every single person who was there was satisfied, and they were satisfied abundantly. Nobody left there hungry. Nobody left without 12 baskets of food were left over. Jesus' provisions are not meager. And said, Jesus provides in abundance. He has more riches than we could could ever imagine. He blesses us and he provides for us richly. Now, how how do the people react? How do people react to Jesus' feeding? Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world Perceiving then that they were about to come and and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now we get another Old Testament reference. John is full of Old Testament references, in case you didn't realize that as we've been working through the text and and particularly through today. I mean, John is constantly linking us back to the Old Testament. This time, it's not to the beginning of Moses' career as he he brings the people out in the Exodus. This time, it is at the end of Moses' career. Deuteronomy. If you're reading through the Bible with us, you've read this scripture just recently. Deuteronomy 18:5. Moses says that another prophet is going to come like him who would lead the people. And so seeing all of these signs and hearing Jesus' teaching, they believe that Jesus is the prophet who Moses spoke about. You see, Moses had, had fed the people, Moses had led the people. And here's Jesus. Jesus has fed the people. And Jesus could could lead the people out of this Roman bondage. And so they saw Jesus at this moment as this great warrior Messiah who could lead a new exodus. And they were ready to take him by force. They were ready to make him their king so that Jesus might be able to lead these people out of Roman oppression, out of Roman bondage, to the new kingdom where he is going to sit as their king and their Are going to live in his kingdom with them. That he would sit on the eternal throne of David. The king that would lead them in the new kingdom was there to free them from oppression. And they're ready to take him. They're ready to make him their king. But Jesus wasn't just someone that they could use for healing. Jesus is not someone that they can just use for liberation from Roman oppression. But here's the thing: Jesus is not going to be used by us either. These folks, they wanted to use Jesus. Sometimes we want to use Jesus. We want to use Jesus to get what what we can get out of him, but Jesus is not going to be used by us. Is Jesus going to provide for us? Yes, Jesus is going to provide for us, but not in the way that they thought, not in the way that we think sometimes. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to think in earthly terms. Jesus wants us to think in cosmic terms. He had the spiritual in mind rather than the physical, and that's where we often get caught up. We, we think that this world is going to satisfy us. We think that this world is going to bring us joy. We think that the things in this world are going to lead us into this utopian society, but that is not the case. We have to think outside of this, this physical world. This world is, is marred by sin. This world cannot save us. We have to think outside of the physical. We have to think in cosmic terms. We have to think in spiritual terms. If we truly want to experience the blessings of Jesus, we've got to begin thinking, not like Philip, and not like Andrew, but we've got to see who Jesus really is. And so who is Jesus? What does this narrative reveal about who Jesus is, about what Jesus is? Will provide. Well, this is you know a long, a long chapter, but but it's slightly different than the first narrative that we encountered. The woman, I mean, the uh, the one when he turned water into wine. There we encountered this enacted parable where Jesus performs this thing, but he doesn't really tell us why. Here we are told what this what this means, what this sign actually represents. And since it's a long chapter, we're gonna we're gonna jump to the heart of what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus leaves the mountain. He returns to Capernaum as you continue to work through the chapter. Sometime later, the, the crowd, they, they seek Jesus out. They begin to, they begin to follow Jesus. They, they want to know who he is. And as the crowd comes to Jesus in this other city, verse 26, Jesus says to them this, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set his seal. And so Jesus goes straight to the heart. He cuts through the chase. He says, look, you are here for one reason and one reason only. You want me to keep providing for your physical needs. That's why you came out to this desolate place. That's why you followed me all the way to the city and sought me out. You want me to continue to provide for your physical needs. But Jesus tells them, if that is all you want, if that is all that you want for me to do, you are missing out because you can have so much more. And you can have so much more as well, church. God cares about social justice, yes. He cares about meeting the needs of the poor and the sick. He cares about our daily provisions. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to even pray for those daily provisions. The psalmist, if you're reading through the Scripture with us, you you continue to read, you know, the psalmist is constantly asking God to protect him, to liberate them. Jesus cares for all of those things. Jesus will do all of those things. Jesus will provide for us. And so, yes, God cares about our physical needs. He made you a physical being after all, and He will continue to meet those physical needs. But if that is the only reason that you are seeking Jesus, you are missing out. There is so much more. You can have food that endures to eternal life, Jesus tells us. And just like Jesus offered living water, Jesus now offers food that endures to eternal life. You can't work for eternal life. Instead, it's freely given. And the only way to get it is to lay down your baker's mint and believe, which means that that we must believe in order to receive the bread which represents salvation. And that's tough. I mean, it it is ingrained in us that, that for everything that we get, we are supposed to work for that thing. That was true then, and that's true today. But we can't work for the bread that Jesus offers us. We must only believe and in whom must we believe? Well, Jesus, he, he begins to get into this debate with the people, if you will, in, in verse 30. And, and ironically, they, they, are, they are asking for a sign, like, like the woman at, at the well. They, they didn't realize what Jesus was offering them. I mean, he just fed 5,000 people. Jesus has done all of these different signs. These people were in the receiving end of this miracle, and they're asking Jesus for another sign, so that they would know who he is. He's offered them spiritual food. And so look at the text, beginning in verse 30. And so they said then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. Jesus just fed them. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And look how Jesus responds, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. It is unmistakable. unmistakable. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life who has come on the Father's mission. The bread does not represent something in this world. It's not something secret that we need to find. It's not something that we work for so that we can possess it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The bread that you are seeking, I am that bread. And Jesus has come on the Father's Mission. He has come to save all of those whom the Father has given him. Verse 44 makes this explicit No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus has come on the Father's rescue mission. And just as all those whom the Father has given will come to Jesus. They will continue in him because Jesus says, I will keep them. I will raise them up on the last day. You see, it is his job to keep them so that they might experience eternal life. And Jesus says, I will do that. He will keep all of those whom the Father has given him. He will raise them up on the last day. You see, we are saved by Jesus, through and through by Jesus' work on our behalf. He accomplishes the mission that the Father has sent him on. And what must we do in order to receive this bread? In other words, why is Jesus the one who is able to rescue us? Why can Jesus be the bread of life? We'll look at verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Now, it seems like the text just kind of took this weird, weird turn, right? Like, but here's the thing. Jesus is not telling us to be cannibals. I mean, you read through the text, he's going to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus is not telling us to be, to be cannibals. No, he is telling us something significant about his work and what we must believe when he, when he goes here. In order for you to feast on the bread, in order for you to gain life from it, you must first, it must first be broken. Excuse me. You, are, you, don't, you don't take a whole loaf and, and eat that whole loaf in one gulp. But it doesn't matter if you're a teenager, if you're a kid, how hungry you might be, right? Like, like, you cannot eat that whole loaf in one gulp. You've got to do what first? You've got to break it. The bread has to be broken in order for us to eat that. And the same thing here. We are given life because Jesus is broken for us. And he had to be broken in order to save us because we're a sinful people. You see, no amount of work, no amount of, of breaking our own selves will restore us to the Father. God is holy, and we are not. We are marred by sin, and we can't have a relationship with the Father because we are an unholy people. I mean, you can think about it like this, right? When you go to the grocery store and you go down, you go down the bread aisle and you're looking for you know, some bread to, to bring home, uh, you, you, don't, you don't pick up that, that moldy, old, stale loaf of bread and put it in your shopping cart, go to the cash register and check out with it and bring it home for you and your family to eat. No, you, you leave that outside of your house. You leave it outside of your cart. You leave that bread on the shelf. And the thing is, is that we are that moldy, stale piece of bread, that loaf. And we, we can't do anything. We cannot rebake ourselves so that now we become this nice loaf of bread that somebody wants to take home with them. We can't rebake ourselves so that now all of a sudden we become a holy people. We are marred by sin and there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves holy, to make ourselves more appealing to God. No amount of works, no amount of goodness, nothing. We can do nothing to make ourselves more appealing to God. But here's the thing. God can and God does. Amen. In Christ, this two-way transaction takes place. See, our sins, they, they, are, they are placed on Jesus. And Jesus is broken in our place. Jesus pray, pray, pays the debt that we owe. Jesus pays the debt that we cannot pay for ourselves. And then, and then His righteousness, and His holiness, is transferred to us so that when God looks at us, he sees a righteous and holy people, not because we've done anything, but because Jesus has done it for us. You see, we can't make ourselves holy, but Jesus can make ourselves holy, and he can allow us then to enter into the presence of a holy God. You see, the God that we serve, the God of this universe, the creator of everything, is not a small God. He's a big God. He's an all sovereign God. He is a holy God. But in order for that to take place, the Spirit must work in your life. John sixty three. John six sixty three. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words <clears throat> that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You see, if you are going to return, if you are going to turn and repent, which we must all do, the Spirit must work in your life. And along with with turning and repenting, you must feast on Jesus alone. Only the bread of life can provide us with eternal life. And so we must feast on Him and Him alone. But in order for us to do that, we have to be drawn to Jesus by the Father. Only then will we be completely and utterly satisfied by Him. Only then will we feast on the bread of life. And when we do that, we will experience eternal soul satisfaction that only Jesus can provide. And knowing that Jesus is the bread of life, knowing that Jesus has come, that he has given himself for us, that he allowed himself to be broken in our place Knowing that God draws us to him, knowing that Jesus will keep us and raise us up on the last day should cause us to be captivated by him. It should cause us to be drawn to him and nothing else in this world but to Jesus. We must be captivated by Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who sustains us. Jesus is the one who has come from heaven to seek us on a rescue mission. Jesus must captivate us. And if Jesus doesn't captivate us, then we will never be satisfied. We will never be satisfied by the things of this world. We must only be satisfied by Jesus because he is the only one who can truly satisfy us. And so what are you feasting on? Are you feasting on your work? Are you feasting on relationships? Are you feasting on the things that the world has to offer you? Or are you feasting on the bread of life? Are you feasting on Jesus? Only Jesus can satisfy your soul feast on him this morning.